Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Malpathanchel. Healthcare matters to all of us, but it's not affordable for everyone. Buying insurance is costly for small businesses and nonprofits. So what's the fix? State Comptroller Kevin Lembo says a public option could help. Today, where we live, Lembo joins us to talk about this proposal before state lawmakers. As in previous years, the bill faces opposition from the insurance industry. And this year, it also faces some last-minute changes that could complicate things. Also, a competing plan from Connecticut's governor. We'll talk about how the public option proposal could work and answer your questions, too. Do you own a small business or work for one? Do you have insurance or have trouble affording it? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later, we'll hear from Kaiser Health News Senior Correspondent Mary Agnes Carey. But first, on Zoom with us is State Comptroller Kevin Lembo. Comptroller Lembo, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Let's talk about the public option. It means different things to different people, even within the Democratic Party. So how would this public option proposal work and why is it needed? Well, the the public option bill this year is contained in Senate Bill 842. Um, And it tries to get at just what you mentioned in the introduction, and that is the affordability and access questions. And embedded in those are some equity questions as well, which we can talk about in a little bit. So the bill does that in two ways. One is to look at the individual market, particularly people who buy health care on the exchange, uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, exchange, and increases subsidy that's available to those folks. And in some cases, has an eye toward eliminating premiums altogether for people below a certain percentage of the federal poverty level. It also sets up a separate subsidiary uh, to provide access to coverage for our undocumented neighbors who were specifically excluded from the Affordable Care Act. They can't even buy insurance with their own money on the exchange because of federal law. Um, And it also takes the uh, eligibility uh, number up for Medicaid so that parents uh, who have kids on Husky uh, could also access Medicaid. So that's sort of the individual side. The other side is the group side, and it gets at the small business challenge uh, that many folks are facing and also challenges to our nonprofits who provide such an important service in Connecticut. And that is what I'm most intimately working on in my office because I run a health plan already for almost a quarter of a million people. So this plan would use uh, state purchasing power to negotiate insurance policies for small business and nonprofits. That's right. Um, they would be set up in their in their own group, um, but they would leverage the work that I've been doing in my office for the last ten years, and that is, you know, really hard nosing uh, contract negotiations to get the best price um, in things like pharmaceutical drugs. Um, really trying to push um, a quality first. Uh, 
agenda with our members. That is sort of where, who does the best fill in the blank uh, knee replacements and how do we drive folks uh, to those uh, providers in a more efficient way and make sure they have the information necessary to make uh, informed decisions. All the things that we've do, been doing, the health enhancement program, centers of excellence, networks of distinction, all of that is putting downward pressure on the cost of healthcare within our plan. And that's great for taxpayers and great for the sustainability of the program and the members that it serves. But for those folks who can't afford coverage or those who are struggling to hang on, it's really a so what moment. Like we can leverage what we're already doing to just open up another option. And if people want to uh, make use of that option, they can. And if they want to walk by it and continue with what they're doing now, they're welcome to do that as well. I'm glad you brought up taxpayers because, you know, uh, people who are opposed to a public option here in Connecticut say that insurance companies will pass the costs on to taxpayers. So explain how you would pay for the public option. So there's a couple pieces to the answer. One is the taxpayers are not on the hook um, by any stretch of the imagination for the activity of the public option when and if it gets passed. And by that, I mean that premiums uh, will be levied on the groups that join, and those will be appropriately set at a level that meets the need but actually doesn't exploit uh, those those new customers. Um, and if there's any uh, unforeseen claims that come in in any one year, the bill now requires that I purchase private stop loss insurance, uh, which is really just an insurance policy on top of an insurance policy that sits in the background and takes care of those excess costs should they uh, crop up. So in that way, there is no risk to the taxpayer. The, the argument on the other side is a little confused and confusing um, because they're talking about a shift, but what they're really talking about is that individual side that I already spoke about because there's a $50 million uh, tax uh, that would be associated with those subsidies that I mentioned. But it's important to remember that that $50 million comes in the context of $300 million in tax relief for these same companies when the tax piece in the Affordable Care Act on the federal level expired. So instead of getting $300 million worth of benefit, they'll only get 250, but yet that's not enough. They want the whole 300 and they're threatening to then pass the other 50 million onto their members. And, and people, policyholders should be outraged by that line of thinking. You know, Kathy tweeted at us that she's executive director of a small nonprofit and they offer health insurance benefits to their employees, but their costs continue to increase despite switching to a high deductible health plan. So Kathy's one of these residents uh, who supports a public option, another option on the table. But can you describe if the public option were to become reality in this state? how somebody who who might have a, a business of just two or three people could join this and, and you know how it would work for them yeah so uh, the the bill is targeted or the program will be targeted once it's passed and I'm crossing my fingers uh, would be targeted at small businesses between one and 50 employees and nonprofits of any size and also something called the Taft Hartley plans which are union health plans in the private sector mostly and I always believe that they because they often have national relationships they had leverage uh, to get best price um, and as it turns out that's not the case across the board so they might be able to buy in as well if 
non if uh, small businesses or nonprofits wanted to participate once the program is up and running, they would just contact a call center that we would set up um, and they would get a price quote and then be able to compare that. It's important to remember also that the bill specifically prevents me from offering high deductible plans in this program uh, because the high deductible plans um, are bad news for lots uh, on lots of levels, um, but really they just push people further away from care. They often increase cost as a result and leave people who are technically insured, but really have, it's an illusory benefit. They never in many cases actually touch the benefit because they're in these six and $15,000 deductible situations. And those are specifically the folks that you're trying to make sure they get things like routine care and uh, don't avoid the emergency room if something terrible is happening. You know, do we really want, you know, our mom sitting at the kitchen table saying, is this indigestion or a heart attack? Well, I have a $15,000 deductible, it's probably indigestion digestion. You know, that's that's just crazy. You're hearing State Comptroller Kevin Lembo here on Where We Live as we talk about the public option proposal. Before state lawmakers, again, the number, if you have a question, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you talked about uh, premiums under this plan would not increase by more than 3% per year. But where does the extra money come from when we think about the cost of health care that you know, often does increase more than 3% per year? Yeah. So, you know, I said at the beginning that, uh, you know, we're working hard to really rationalize the cost of care within the plan that I already run. So all of those uh, initiatives, all of that active management uh, would then be made available uh, in this new plan as well. So in that way, we're probably one of the only groups, it's the largest group in the state that I'm buying care for, um, but we're really leveraging that size of that group to like engage again providers and make sure our folks are getting the care they need on the front end to avoid catastrophic care on the back end. So the, the percentage increase on like back of the envelope, when you think about a plan that I run that's got an administrative load, and what that means is as a percentage of total premium, how much does it cost me to run this plan? Well, the answer to that is 2.3%. The difference in the private sector is 15, 20, and sometimes more in costs that are hidden uh, on the medical side. So um, you can see pretty quickly how you can get immediate price relief. And because of the initiatives and because of the active management that we employ, uh, you would see a control of costs over time and not a control of costs that relies on denying people care, pushing them further away from care, but actually making it a health plan and not a catastrophic insurance product, which is not a health plan. Let's talk about where this bill uh, is with, before the General Assembly. Uh, lawmakers made some changes when it was before the Insurance Committee, adding a requirement that this new health plan follow the same rules as private health plans. I imagine this is not a, a something that you support, Comptroller Lembo. Why? Right. Well, the yeah, that amendment was passed uh, by a legislator on behalf of the insurance industry in the insurance committee, and it flipped the plan from self-insured, as you point out, to fully insured, and therefore under the auspice of the state insurance department. And that was that change was made under the banner of consumer protection, um, but 
if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see how nutty that actually is because of the people who are insured uh, in Connecticut right now, only about 30% of the people who have insurance are in plans that are regulated by the insurance department in Connecticut. The rest, 70%, are in plans that are regulated by the federal government under ERISA. So this plan would be governed under ERISA and have all of the filing requirements and all of the transparency requirements that plans like that uh, must have. So I do not support the bill. Um, what If it was allowed to pass into law, it would take away all of those cost savings, all of those value-based insurance initiatives that we've put in place over the years, strip them right out of the program and throw these folks back into the traditional, unaffordable, fully insured products that are being sold by some of the carriers uh, in the state. And so I'm not going to be in the business of aggregating lives and handing them over to industry so that they can hand them lousy insurance and raise their rates more than 15 and 20 percent a year. I'm just not going to do that. That's not the goal of this. So what are your options for uh, changing the proposal back to before what the insurance uh, committee added as an amendment? Uh, the appropriations committee also did not change it back, Comptroller. Right. So it's passed through insurance. It's passed through the finance committee um, with that amendment attached. Uh, the good news on in all of that is that it's got good momentum. Uh, we're going to have to make a change now that it's on the Senate floor um, and correct the language back to uh, something that mirrors the original, but actually is a little bit different because there have been real uh, well-intended concerns that have been raised during the debate. Things like the stop loss, uh, the, the risk to the taxpayer that we've already uh, mentioned. Um, it talks about we would need to add in language that would uh, make sure that independent actuaries certify the premiums uh, that we've calculated through our office, that they get approved by the state's healthcare cost containment committee, and they get filed with the state insurance department, not for oversight, but for transparency and to let them know uh, what we are up to. And also, we have agreed uh, to pay many of the same fees that the commercial carriers pay, things like the vaccine fund uh, and others. So with those changes, it is my hope uh, in amended language on the Senate floor um, that there would be the support to move it, that leadership would move it to the floor uh, for a vote, um, and we would get it ready uh, to go from the Senate to the House and then to the governor's desk. So a uh, last chance play on the Senate floor uh, to get that change, uh, Comptroller. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it, it's never really over, right? Um, so <laughs> if not this, then we will look for other uh, ways to get it done. Uh, when 70% of Connecticut residents in independent polling and in our own polling feel that the present system is unsustainable, unaffordable, and that the intervention of government with a public option would help to improve both cost and quality. We need to listen to our constituents. They are telling us what they need and 70%. That's not a small number. And lawmakers are going to have to look at that, those constituents, many of whom they've knocked on their doors and asked for their votes, and tell them why, if they decide not to move forward, that they got spooked by a letter from the insurance industry, or you know, they're afraid uh, to pass a bill like this, and so therefore they're going to side with the five CEOs who wrote to Governor Lamont. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about um, some of the 
um, the argument against a public option. We spoke to Republican State Senate Minority Leader Kevin Kelly earlier in the session, and he said that this proposal would also force health insurance companies to compete with the state. This is what he shared. What the public option does is will actually have the state of Connecticut go into direct competition. And that direct competition is going to kill Connecticut jobs. So uh, it doesn't get its arms around the, the cost driver and it's backed by the taxpayer. And that's problematic. So the, the point about being backed by the taxpayer, you already addressed Comptroller Lembo where uh, this proposal would uh, in, require you to buy stop loss insurance to protect taxpayers from unpredictable losses under public option. But what about uh, the, the, the point about how this would impact Connecticut jobs? Because we have insurance companies based here, as you ref ref referenced, the insurer sending a letter to Governor Lamont saying, look, the pandemic, people can work remotely. We don't need to be in this state. Do you worry that that could have a detrimental impact on our state economy. So I think any clear thinking policymaker or lawmaker um, needs to think long and hard about what that letter means, but also has to understand the context and understand the history. And that is that that argument has been played out over and over and over again, year after year after year, and it has chilled conversation, debate, and lawmaking um, around the issue of affordability. So um, I'm not sure when um, it becomes really real, um, but I can tell you that when I look at large employers, large insurers, um, that's been a shrinking part of Connecticut's economy. Now, I, I don't mean to sound town, tone deaf about the people who are working there, because I don't believe for a second that this would jeopardize Connecticut jobs. And I'll tell you why. I don't run an insurance company out of my office. I contract with private sector carriers to help run this program, but not on their rules, on our rules. So for example, when we gave Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield our exclusive right to serve our health plan, they added jobs because we're a feather in the cap of any CEO locally who gets the state of Connecticut's business because we are the biggest group. When Cigna gets our dental group, they have to make sure that it's staffed up appropriately. When CBS Caremark wins the award to run our pharmacy benefits, they do that as well. And, and then it's not just big companies. There's a small company in, in Stanford uh, called Signify that we contract with to help us analyze quality data from hospitals and large provider groups. In the middle of all that's going on, Signify went public. They had an initial public offering, raised $530 million on the first day. And in their prospectus, they list the state of Connecticut contract as one of the reasons why people should contract with them, not only because they have the business, but because what we're doing is replicable in other mm -hmm. places. It is the ultimate in public-private partnership. These same carriers, Lucy, are the ones who would grab me in the Capitol, pull me aside and say, look, we're fighting against the public option bill. But if it passes, we'd really like to negotiate with you for the business. Mm. So, you know, it, it, they know that there are jobs there. And the other piece of that is big box employers, large employers have been shrinking, not because we've done anything as a state, but because they're making rational business decisions, offshoring, technology, all the reasons why they're shrinking. Small and medium-sized businesses, however, are growing. 
And those are the businesses that often have deep roots in Connecticut. Either they were people were born here or educated here. And we talk a lot about economic development. Well, what better economic development could there be than turning to those businesses and saying, look, we're going to give you an efficient, affordable, and reliable health plan so that you can take whatever big idea you're working on because you feel chained to your cubicle and your big mega company and let you not worry about that piece. You can buy insurance through this plan and launch your business. Those are the businesses that are going to really support our economy over the next 20 and 30 years. But it's that toggling between these two things um, that is scary. Uh, but if you don't, you're hanging on to a dying business model and you go down with the ship inevitably. So who is Governor Lamont listening to uh, on this proposal? Because he's got his own competing plan. And oh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about his uh, plan to impact uh, and help people afford health care, including capping pharmaceutical uh, prices. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't put the governor's bill in the same category as the bill we're talking about today, because it does some things, uh, but it does some things around the edges. And many of the pieces of that bill are not new. Um, they've been talked about, and some of them are, in fact, already in the bill, in Senate Bill 842. Um, so, uh, you know, the governor's going to make his decision um, on what he wants to do with this bill. But again, 70% of people support this. And it is a major plank of the Democratic Party, not to play party politics here, that we support a public option. The president of the United States supports a public option. So who are we? You know, if we are willing to say no to that 5.3% of the population that remains uninsured, they are disproportionately people of color, 74% work full time, another 14% work part-time. They're doing everything we've asked them to do to live that quote-unquote American dream. But now we have an opportunity to get them meaningful health insurance. And we're going to say no, because we're afraid we're not going to do that. You know, we talked about insurance companies sending a letter to the governor uh, laying out their opposition. But what about hospital systems? How do they feel about this public option, including how the state would reimburse them for services? Um, you know, hospital systems have seen huge losses in this pandemic. Other states that are that have also proposed public option, you know, are listening to their hospital systems and, you know, saying maybe this is not the year for the public option like Colorado. How do you respond to, to those concerns? So, uh, you know, I've had meetings with many of the CEOs of both small and large hospitals around the state, and that's been in the last year in the run-up to this, and also because we're actively negotiating with them around centers of excellence and networks of distinction and direct contracting uh, with the state to serve our members. And those negotiations um, are really um, a sample of what we see when it comes to the question of the public option. The bigger the system, the more complex the system, the more, the greater the concern, right? The, the, the more issues that come up as we talk about this. But at the end of the day, this is a commercial product and they have commercial negotiated rates built in. So, all the years that I've been in healthcare, and you know, you remember as the healthcare advocate before this, mm -hmm. all I heard was complaining and worse from providers and hospitals about the insurance companies. And now we're at a moment where 
we can change that dynamic, not only with the people who participate in the public option, but if it becomes a quality first conversation, all quality improves as a result. And if there's going to be competition and the carriers are going to actually work to keep this business, then you know they would be working on getting their prices to a meaningful place as well and making sure that those increases are, are tolerable for their members. So their commercial rates, this isn't a Medicaid platform that we're working off. I haven't heard many, if any, providers ever say they don't want to serve state employees. I've never heard anyone really complain about the value of the health benefit that we have, uh, except a couple of legislators who really went down the rabbit hole um, in their... Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they were very worked up uh, about the idea of the public option. Um, but they never said, uh, you know, they, when they said that the plan, well, the plan may not be as good as people think, but they never want to drop the plan themselves, right? They, they, open enrollment time is now. If these legislators think that their constituents don't deserve this plan, if they think that somehow the plan that they have is not good enough, then they can feel free to forego coverage. They just have to let people know that they want to do that. Nobody's going to do that, Lucy, because they know that at the end of the day, if they say no to their constituents, they still go home with the best coverage that money can buy in the state of Connecticut. You're hearing State Comptroller Kevin Lembo here on Where We Live. We'll continue talking after the break and take your questions to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us today, State Comptroller Kevin Lembo. Before we move on from health care, uh, Comptroller Lembo, uh, Senator Kevin Kelly uh, did tweet at us, uh, and he said that there's a third option on the table. This is their proposal, the, the GOP proposal, to lower the cost of health insurance by providing reinsurance for health insurers. Uh, what, what are the um, issues you have with that approach? Comptroller sorry. Lumber, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Yeah, I can. Um, I think reinsurance is an important part or could be an important part of an otherwise comprehensive package to address, address this issue. Um, it is um, really, uh, one can't say with a straight face that by itself, it would solve the problems uh, in the health insurance market. Um, and the question is always, who pays for the reinsurance pool? Whose dollars are sitting in there where insurance carriers, when they run an excess loss, would be able to dip in and, and pull money out of that pool to keep themselves whole? Um, and is that really the right model? Um, I can tell you, Lucy, that um, in, with all of the initiatives uh, that we've been working on, and when we actively negotiate uh, with our contractors. I was able to call Governor Lamont um, a little more than a month ago and let him know that we are going to need $250 million less to run our plan in the new biennium than we did last year or in the last biennium. Uh, and that's real savings for taxpayers. It's real control of health care costs. And it means that 
in times like this pandemic, where claims dropped off significantly, we were able to go back to Cigna on our dental side and other carriers that we have and claw back dollars from them. What small business, what large business or large nonprofit is able to leverage that position to hold the insurance companies accountable and make sure they just don't run away with those dollars that were paid in premium, but not paid out in claims, um, and then just serve to enrich CEO bonus packages. Um, it's really not the way this system um, is supposed to operate. Let's move on and let's talk about the economy. Your office puts out a monthly letter uh, looking at our state economy and the current year's state budget surplus or deficit. Uh, on Monday, your letter uh, predicted a $250 million surplus in the current year. We seem to be on much more solid ground. Is Why is that? Is it from the savings in the pandemic uh, paired with the federal, federal uh, COVID relief money, Comptroller Lembo? It is. It's a combination of things like anything else. Um, but, you know, 69 million of that 250 is really um, projections on revenue that have been increased um, in joint agreement between the governor's budget office and the legislative uh, budget office. But that reflects an increase of $150 million more in the withholding uh, part of the income tax and 100 more on the estimated and finals portion and 104 in sales. Um, so there are a couple of pieces. You know, stimulus dollars certainly helped. The data shows that nationally, uh, people uh, used those stimulus dollars in what I'll call a third, a third, a third. They paid down debt with a third, they saved a third, and they spent a third. So it did have a stimulative effect on the economy, and uh, that is really what it was intended to do. Um, but it's a big change, right? And the filing period for the income tax has been pushed from April to mid-May, as you know. And we have to watch those numbers uh, pretty closely. Um, another piece of it is... Wall Street's done really well for itself. You know, they, they um, folks who were invested in the market have seen record returns while people in minimum wage jobs have really struggled uh, to find work or to, to get themselves employed or hang on to employment. Uh, so there's a real dichotomy here. There's a real um, split in, in how people are experiencing uh, what looks like an improvement in the state's economy. That's right. In your letter, you talk about a lot of uncertainty still uncertainty still before uh, the state of Connecticut, uh, looking at people and recovering jobs, the leisure and hospitality sector continuing to be hit the hardest, uh, Comptroller Limbo. Right. I was speaking with the state senator yesterday from the eastern part of the state, you know, who really, you know, her constituents don't see what looks like happy days are here again. They are struggling and they also feel like that their state government isn't taking their need uh, seriously and trying to do something uh, to help them because it just looks like, based on the numbers and based on the stimulus that's come in, that we've done everything that we can do. Uh, I would argue that this is the moment to make sure uh, that we re-engineer, that we, we rework our priorities uh, to make sure that there is equity uh, in the economy going forward. We know that the stark differences uh, between our residents. Um, and at some point, that becomes intolerable. And uh, in the restacking of the economy, I think you see a lack of patience with that situation. You know, people just want to work, work hard, and support their families. Uh, and many feel like there's no opportunity for them right now. 
Yes, and I understand there's a split between uh, some Democratic leaders in the assembly of, of how to spend some of those savings to help bolster the social services programs. Uh, Governor Lamont is not completely on board with that. Right. Well, you know, it goes back to 2015. I remember bringing a proposal to the legislature and asking them to consider saving one-time revenue when it came in for the rainy day that inevitably occurs. Occurred at that point, the, the legislature, you know, it just our rainy day fund was so uh, limited uh, that we really couldn't weather a storm. And in 2017, it passed in 2015. It got repassed again in 2017. And as a result, we filled the rainy day fund north of three billion dollars. That's helped our credit rating. It's helped the view of the national bond buyers on what Connecticut's position is. But then it does raise the question, okay, we've filled the rainy day fund. It's there when and if we need it. Now what? The plan is that those excess dollars automatically pay down debt, that we take care of the unfunded liability in the pension fund and the teacher's fund and in the state employee fund. But there is another need here that needs to be addressed. The way that to do that is to embed the appropriation, the dollars that are necessary to solve whatever problem that they need to solve, and then craft the budget accordingly. Um, and um, I uh, give lots of credit uh, to legislators who are speaking on behalf of their community and understand that, um, again, uh, this isn't fixed. Um, and there's more to it than just the balance in the rainy day fund, which I'm very proud of. Uh, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. I wanted to ask you about the paid leave uh, family leave program we have in our state. Uh, we know that employers were supposed to be taking half a percent out of workers' paychecks at the start of the year to contribute to Connecticut's paid leave program. But I understand a lot of employers missed that deadline, including the state of Connecticut for some of its employees. Your office oversees employee benefits. What happened? <laughs> You know, um, it's it's interesting because Connecticut is, I think, one of, if not the only employer in Connecticut that has an individual who can be working both in a unionized job and a non-unionized job. And the fee is only supposed to be taken out on the non-unionized part of someone's salary. So in most cases, it's all of the salary for most people, but there is a group where that's not the case. And so the, it's really a coding question, a technology question uh, that we had to uh, solve on our own uh, because the vendor that we use, um, we were a one-off um, because we are unique in that way and they weren't uh, offering a, a fix for that. So the staff has worked really hard. Uh, working with PFMLA has been awesome. Um, they are great to work with. And uh, we've begun taking the dollars out. And I think our first transmission of dollars uh, went to them uh, just uh, this week or late last week. Uh, so we're, we're on it. Um, and uh, things seem to be going pretty well at this point. I want to take a quick call. Chris is calling in from Weathersfield. Chris, go ahead quickly. We just have a couple of minutes. Uh, yes. Um, I had been uninsured uh, and dealing with an orthopedic group, um, and I asked them, okay, what uh, insurance uh, do, do you authorize, do you have? And it was Connecticut. So mm -hmm. I got uh, the Connecticut through the CT Exchange Network at that time, only to find out that the doctor uh, would not deal with the public exchange Connecticut. Will your public option uh, address that, how that can or cannot happen? 
Yeah, it's an important question because networks are really where the rubber hits the road, right? What doctor can I see and under what circumstance? And is is it covered? Uh, we in the plan that I run now have, I think, one of, if not the most robust network uh, in the state. Uh, and so that same network would uh, serve the new public option uh, population that would come in should the bill uh, pass. So, you know, on the exchange, uh, they are able to offer what we call skinny networks, means not everyone in a specific network is covered. Um, and that would not be the case in our plan because again, we're leveraging a quarter of a million lives and a book of business that people don't want to walk away from, right? A provider doesn't want to say, well, I don't want to serve this population, but I'll continue to serve state employees. That's not going to be an option. If you want to do one, they're going to have to do the other. And I haven't heard any pushback because the reimbursement rates are fair. Thanks, Chris, for your question. Uh, we're out of time, so we'll, we'll look to see what happens with the public option proposal uh, on the Senate floor, Comptroller Lembo. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Lucy. I hope folks will call their legislators, Senate Bill 842. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear from Kaiser Health News Senior Correspondent Mary Agnes Carey. She'll join us with some national perspective on health care. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, women on average make 82 cents for every dollar earned by men. And women of color make even less than that. On the next Where We Live, we take a look at the role greater pay transparency can play to address the wage gaps in our country. We hope you join us for that conversation tomorrow. Now, we just heard from State Comptroller Kevin Lembo, who's supporting a public option proposal before the Connecticut General Assembly. For some national perspective on health care, joining us now on Zoom, Mary Agnes Carey, Kaiser Health News Senior Correspondent. Mary Agnes, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You've been covering healthcare for a long time, even yes. before the ACA. So when you hear uh, Comptroller Lembo share uh, his proposal for public option here in our state, are these similar arguments that have been playing out in other states about why this option is needed? No, absolutely. I mean, you've got Washington State now has a public option. It's kind of a, a slow roll, if you will. Not a lot of people signing up yet. Not a lot of insurers offering um, benefits, but that same tension that he's talking about um, on, you know, what will be the reimbursement rates, uh, what are the concerns people have about how it will affect taxpayers, that's kind of playing out all over the place. Um, Colorado recently just backed off a plan uh, to institute their public option, which was fairly comprehensive, but it was it was really rooted in uh, reimbursement rates for the providers. I mean, you've got to remember now, post-COVID, not only are insurers making the case that this is not the time for a public option, but hospitals and providers are as well saying, you know, we've been on the front lines, we've been enduring this um, COVID and all the costs, and it's simply not the time to pass a public option. But that said, you know, states like Connecticut, Washington State, Oregon's exploring it, Nevada's exploring it, other states will, they're going to continue to do this because of all the pressures that were just laid out in your prior interview, Right continuing costs, people uninsured, especially individuals in a small group market, businesses 50 and lower, for example, they don't have the clout to negotiate. And if you put them in with 
like the Connecticut plan that was just laid out with Connecticut state employees, there's a lot more leverage. So the, the cost pressures are not going away on healthcare, even though we're probably not going to see a public option discussion broadly at the federal level for a lot of reasons. Even in our state here in Connecticut, uh, Democrats uh, are, are split between uh, whether uh, a public option is needed, our, our governor not supporting uh, this idea. It is interesting uh, to hear that there uh, is not a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, uh, movement uh, nationwide uh, when we think about the federal level on a public option, Mary Agnes. Yes, you know, President Biden has made it very clear, and he did this during the campaign, that his interest is in shoring up the Affordable Care Act, right? And that's kind of where his his uh, intention and his movement has been. For example, in one of the earlier COVID economic relief packages, the subsidy level, that money that helps people purchase insurance and the Affordable Care Act, that was increased for two years. He would now like to make that permanent, uh, at the federal level, of course, the big intention is in focus is on uh, getting people vaccinated against COVID, getting the economy open, getting money to individuals who may have lost their jobs, they can't pay their rent, they can't put food on the table. So the federal focus from the Biden administration has really been on the ACA. Now, when the president spoke to Congress last week, he did mention this idea that's been out there for a while that a lot of Democrats really like giving Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices. Um, he didn't. It's, it's important to notice to note that he didn't put that in his his proposals. His two different you know proposals that he put forward: the most recent transportation bill, and then the the families plan that he introduced last week. So he's dangling that out there. There are going to be House hearings on that issue. Uh, the thought is that if you could negotiate drug prices. Through Medicare, you would have a lot of savings to increase Medicare benefits to possibly do more with the ACA. Um, so again, the focus has been on shoring up the ACA, making these additional subsidies permanent, and then general general overall COVID relief, transportation, you know, infrastructure, the economy, that kind of thing. And there's such narrow margins in both the House and Senate, so it'll be difficult to see uh, which proposals Democrats would be happy to pass, because uh, we know some of them want to see single payer. That's right. And that's the thing. You've got this split, right? In the House, Democrats have about a, I think it's a five or six seat margin. They've got of the five vacancies for from Democratic uh, represented districts. That's an issue. And as you to your point, there is this fight between single-payer, Medicare for all, public option. And then in the Senate, as we know, there's a 50-50 split with Vice President Harris being the deciding vote. And of course, she's a Democrat. So that helps the Democrats in some cases, not others, depending on whether it's a reconciliation package, which is 51 votes that has to have budget implications. So it, that's exactly right. Democrats are kind of split internally over how to proceed. So if that's the case, and you have these other pressing legislative issues where you think you can get broader consensus, not only among Democrats, but perhaps with some Republicans, even though that's been hard to do, whether it's economic relief or transportation, infrastructure, that sort of thing. I can You can see politically that's where Democrats' leadership would you know, put their momentum. Mm -hmm. 
We know it's complicated healthcare, but you would think in a, a pandemic, Mary Agnes, uh, when we see uh, how well it's working in terms of, okay, so we know that people need to get tested. This is how we're going to cover it. And, oh, we know people need to be vaccinated. This is how we're going to try to make it happen. Uh, that, you know, there'd be some momentum to, to finally reach some consensus on how to help uh, Americans who are struggling to pay for health insurance. Right. And, and and if you are a fan of the ACA, that would be the route that you would indicate for folks, right? Mm-hmm. If they've they've lowered the subsidy, uh, I beg your pardon, they've increased the subsidy relief, uh, they, they've lowered that percentage by which now instead of it being like 10% of your income on premiums, if it's more than 8.5%, you qualify for subsidies. We have this uh, new open enrollment period because of COVID and something like 500,000 people have enrolled. And now there's discussion of it being extended. I believe it's supposed to be May 15th is the current cutoff. And I think they want to do it through August. So if you want to, to accomplish the goal of coverage, that's the route where the, the momentum is going on the ACA. But it doesn't really address the cost issue. And yeah. that is the, the uh, as was currently explained you know, in the prior mm-hmm. interview, that's really a key thing for proponents of the public option. They say, let's bring all these people in, harness that, negotiate prices, try to get better quality, drive costs down. Uh, because while the Affordable Care Act was great at expanding coverage, it hasn't done a lot to reduce health care costs, and that remains a concern. And the Connecticut plan, including a tax on insurers, $50 million a year. I asked uh, Controller Lembo, insurers say they will pass that, will have to pass that on to customers. And, you know, that that is problematic as well because, you know, customers are already struggling to pay. Uh, Americans are already struggling to pay their premiums. Right. And you, as we know, at the federal level, right, that was in the Affordable Care Act and it got taken out. Now, in yeah. Connecticut, the you know, um, Controller Limbo was saying, we want to harvest that money back. We want to get that back for the public option. But guaranteed insurers will push back and say, we'll simply pass it on to folks. But uh, the ACA had several taxes on different sectors of the healthcare economy, and almost every one of those has been rolled back because of pressure from the industry. You know, they're, they're going to pass it to consumers. They're going to cut jobs. It's going to raise your rates. It's going to raise your drug costs so on and so forth. Those are highly compelling arguments, and they will continue to be, especially as we emerge from COVID, as we emerge from this economic downturn, you can bet that those arguments will still have a lot of firepower. When we started talking, you mentioned Washington State, I believe, has a public option, but it's you, you described it as a slow roll. <laughs> why? Why aren't if people are looking for options? Why is it not something that people are looking to on to? Part of it could be new, but you've got, you know, you've only got five insurers that are in there, right? So, and you've got something like 1% of state residents have enrolled. So who knows, right? Part of it could be sometimes if you don't act by a certain point, you are auto-enrolled in the plan you have. That is some thought that perhaps people have been auto-enrolled in a prior plan and they didn't, they didn't act quickly enough during open enrollment. Some of it may be, um, while these plans, these uh, you know, these offerings on the public option in Washington state are more generous than some other plans. They're also more expensive. Beneficiaries may not make that calculation. Gosh, I'm paying more money, but I'm getting more for it. So you have to kind of see it's, it's really just at the beginning. So by the end of this year, you should be able to see 
more about enrollment rates. How do the reimbursement rates go? What are the networks like? Um, how comprehensive are they? I think that that people are really watching watching Washington State to kind of see how it how it plays out, who enrolls, the cost factor, that kind of thing. But you know, sometimes it just takes a while for something to catch on for people to uh, adapt to it. And also, a lot of people don't. Um, it's searching for insurance and shopping for insurance is kind of a headache for people. You know, we talked about, you know, we've talked about the, the networks, right? Is my doctor included? Is my hospital included? Is my pharmacy down the street included? Uh, how will this new plan compare to my old plan? What are the co-pays? What are the deductibles? I mean, I've spent many hours helping my relatives sort through these mm-hmm. kinds of things, but most people, they just don't want to deal with it. So sometimes it's just easier to stay with what you've got. Well, we always appreciate hearing from you. Mary Agnes Carey with Kaiser Health News. She's senior correspondent. And I understand you used to work in Connecticut way back when for the New Haven I Register. Did. I did. <laughs> I worked at the New Haven Register and the Hartford Current and spent um, about eight wonderful years in Connecticut. And I miss it to this day. So it's so much fun to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Mary Agnes Carey. Again, we'll tweet out some links to your great reporting as well as your colleagues. Kaiser Health News is a great resource, and we thank you for your time. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. We'll be back tomorrow.